Humanity, as you probably have experienced in your own life, has always been a longing community. We're creatures that are longing for hope, for change, and for renewal. And every now and then there comes a time in history where history begins to pivot. And overnight what has seemed impossible becomes not only possible, but actually the new reality. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were hoping that they were in one of those moments. They were living under Roman rule with some ability to live out their religious lives, but not with complete freedom. And they have longed for a Messiah to be raised up and to set them free from bondage, to redeem them, to renew them. And for nearly 1,500 years leading up to our passage this morning, the Jewish people had gathered to celebrate the Passover. It was God's gift to enact remembrance and longing amongst God's people. And in the Passover, as they met every year and gathered every year for the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread, they remembered that God had acted before, that he had delivered his people, and in it they remembered God's intervention. They rehearsed it, they celebrated it, and they longed for God to intervene again. What was the state of God's people at the time of his intervention? Because this is the Passover meal that we're talking about in this passage this morning, and it's looking back to the history of Israel, and at the time that God had intervened, the, Israel, the, the, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were enslaved in Egypt. Many of you are probably familiar with the story from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. The Israelites were enslaved for over 400 years and in the midst of their enslavement, it continued to get worse and worse, leading to sort of this fever pitch that it, it uh, records for us in the Bible, that Pharaoh, who had been using the Hebrew people to make bricks to build his empire, began to provide them with less material and demanded the same output. It's the sort of move that is really less about productivity. Some of you guys have had bosses like this. It's the sort of move that's really less about productivity and more about inhumane cruelty. But in the midst of this 400-plus year of enslavement, God intervened. He raised up Moses to demand that Pharaoh release God's people from slavery. And nine times, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so God would send a plague until Pharaoh would relent. But as soon as God caused the plague to relent, Pharaoh would refuse once again to let Israel go. Until the final plague a plague that was the harshest and most sorrowful. And it would bring Egypt to its knees. The death of firstborn sons across the land. And God told Israel in order to escape the plague, they must take a lamb without spot or blemish and kill it and take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts of their houses. They were to eat a meal of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They were to eat this meal dressed and ready to walk out of Egypt because God was going to deliver them. And when the plague came that night, every house marked by the blood of the spotless lamb was spared from the wrath of God. But every house that was not marked would wail and mourn that night. Until finally, Pharaoh released Israel from slavery, and they embarked on the exodus as a people redeemed from slavery and called by God as his own people. 
And every year since then, Jewish families would gather in Jerusalem to rehearse, to reenact God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. God had commanded his people to keep the Passover feast, to pass on from generation to generation the remembrance of God's saving, redeeming act for the enslaved people of God. Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27 says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. All of the disciples... And Jesus himself had annually participated in this Passover meal. They had typically done so probably with their families, those closest to them. And the closest that we probably can come to identifying with what's happening in the Passover meal is if you come from a family that has a holiday with a strong tradition that's done every year, year in and year out. But it's even richer than that. This would have been a warm familial event that the disciples would have looked forward to where they would gather together and remember and rehearse God's faithfulness to his people. And together they would cultivate longing and hope for God's intervention once again. Perhaps even this year, he would intervene and free his people from Roman rule. Perhaps he would redeem them and renew them like he had in times of old. And the disciples say to Jesus, where do you want us to make arrangements for this Passover tonight? And Jesus evidently had already made a plan for the Passover, whether through divine intervention or ordinary planning, we aren't told. But Jesus' arrangement for the Passover was discreet. The tensions had been rising amongst the Jewish leaders, and it's not quite time yet for Jesus' arrest. And why is it not time for Jesus' arrest yet? Because Jesus must first observe the Passover with his disciples. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, my disciples, before I suffer. Jesus said, I must celebrate the Passover with you before I suffer. And as was tradition when evening came, Jesus and the twelve gathered around the table to share the ritual of Passover. And as they reclined at table, which denoted a special meal, and they were eating together, rehearsing the memory of God meeting his people experienced the warmth of a familial gathering that they had experienced their entire lives. Jesus turns the mood on its head. He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And if you're reading through the story and understand the history of the Passover for the people of God, you can feel the mood in the room lurch in a radically different direction. Mark says that they began to be sorrowful and say to him and to one another, is it I? Am I the one who is going to betray you? They're sorrowful and seemingly fearful. Not only will their beloved teacher, mentor, and Lord be betrayed, but one of them will do it. In Mark's telling, Jesus' response is not really comforting or clarifying. He leaves the disciples in the tension. And Jesus says, it's one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him that he had not been born. The dish that the disciples are likely dipping bread into and that Jesus is referring to in this passage is probably the bitter herbs and fruit of the Passover. And the bitter herbs were intended to represent the bitterness of slavery, to remember and even taste of the bitterness of 430 years of their ancestors living in slavery. And it's as if, as if in this passage Jesus is saying, but there's a new bitterness in this dish, that the Messiah of God, that the Son of Man will be betrayed by one of the 12 who walked most closely with him on this earth. And Jesus is also saying, I accept the bitterness. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus echoes Psalm 41.9 that says, Even my closest friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus says, Woe to him. Woe to the one who at this table commits this heinous act, for he has chosen his lot. We know that in the previous verses, Judas had already made arrangements to betray Jesus. But the remarkable thing about this story is that God in his mercy would use this heinous act to accomplish his purposes. Jesus has shattered the warm feeling that the disciples likely felt amidst the Passover, but he's not done subverting their expectations. And what Jesus has for them in the Passover is better than what they could have expected. There was a time in every Passover meal where the host would explain the story and interpret the meaning of the things that they were eating. He would give meaning to the elements, and Jesus may have even said this familiar Passover liturgy that was said year in and year out, where the host would hold up a piece of bread and say, this is the bread of the affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy eat the Passover meal. But here in this passage, as they're eating, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he says, take, eat. This is my body. Jesus does indeed interpret the Passover story as has been done for generations. But the center of the story is shifted as Jesus interprets it. From an act of God's intervention in history, looking back to the past, and Jesus shifts it to the present moment. And he says, for 1,500 years, you've been celebrating God's redemptive work in history as you rehearse it in the Passover meal, hoping, longing, singing, praying that God will act again. And now I am telling you that God is acting again. This is the moment in history that you have been longing for. This bread is my body. And even as this bread has been broken, I will be broken. And even as surely as you touch and taste this bread, I, the Messiah, am with you. You have eaten this as the bread of the affliction, recalling the haste and difficulty of entrusting yourselves to God as you were led out of Egypt into the Exodus. But as Tim Keller notes, this is no longer the bread of the affliction of the people of God. This is the bread of my affliction, Jesus is saying. The bread of affliction of the Son of God. 
This is the bread of my suffering that will nourish you and lead you out of even greater bondage. Jesus is saying in God's long-awaited intervention, he does not just give you manna in the wilderness, food for the journey. He gives you himself. I am he, Jesus says, the embodiment of the self-giving love of God. I am God come to be with his people and broken for their sakes. And then Jesus took a cup. This was likely the third of the four traditional cups in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. And he gave thanks for it and gave it to them, and they all drank of it and took it into their bodies. And then Jesus says this strange thing. It's easy for us to sort of overlook the strangeness of what's happening here. Jesus says, this thing that you're drinking is my blood. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus is digging deep into the tapestry of the Passover. And he's saying, you celebrate that through the blood of the spotless lamb, God passed over you and did not allow his wrath to touch you in the day of the Egyptian plague. You were marked by the blood of the lamb so that God might have mercy on you. But in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus' blood of the covenant is poured out for many for a particular purpose, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, it is my blood of the covenant, which is to say that he has established a new kind of relationship for us with God. One that is based not in our being bad enough or good enough, but on Jesus himself. His life laid down once for all, poured, uh, poured out so that God's people could be passed over by God's wrath. And instead, that we as his people could know his mercy Jesus has shifted the meaning of the Passover from past remembrance of God's intervention to a present in breaking of God's working to a people who had longed for nearly 1,500 years. God is saying, I've intervened again. And Jesus is giving us a new practice. A new practice to remember God's intervention, and to long for his return. And where does Jesus make this practice? At a table. Do you ever think about this? <laughs> the practice of the Passover that the Israelites have practiced for 1,500 years was always at a table, but it was a table with one another that recalled that God had worked. But the table that is introduced to us and Jesus, with Jesus in the Passover, is saying, this is not just a table of God's people meeting together. It is that, but it's more than that. This is God saying, I'm inviting you to a table with me. You're my family. You belong with me, and I'm inviting you to my table. And Jesus says, this very Passover meal is the fulfillment of your longing." But rather than an exodus from political oppression that so many of the Jews at this time expected, Jesus declares that he has come to lead a greater exodus. An exodus not simply out of political oppression, 
but an exodus out of sin and death, the root of what is torn in the fabric of the world, and to establish his own body and his own death as a way out of the bondage of sin and all of its oppressive weight. Jesus is leading us to a life of mercy for God's people. We have a new anchor of hope. God has acted again in history, and Jesus has led us out of enslavement to sin and marked us by his blood as a people of mercy, recipients of blood-bought forgiveness. But even as Jesus shifts the center of the Passover meal from the exodus in Egypt out of, out of slavery to a new redemptive act of God in Jesus' death, Jesus also tells us this. That this table of the Lord's Supper that we'll come to later this morning is still a table of waiting for God's people. Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a promise to us. It's a promise that he is coming back to make all things new. And as the Jewish people for centuries looked back and celebrated God's saving intervention in history and also looked forward to him intervening again, so also we in the communion meal, even as we celebrate God's intervention throughout history through Jesus, we look to the future. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes again. Many scholars observe that it appears that Jesus didn't actually even drink the fourth cup of the Passover meal. There were four cups of wine, and it appears that he didn't actually drink it, that Jesus instead says, I'm not going to drink this final cup, this cup of, consumption, of, of consummation and renewal. He refrains from the cup as a picture to his disciples to say, I am not drinking of this final cup now, but I will so that as you drink this cup in the Lord's Supper, you will long to drink the final cup with me in a renewed world at the banquet feast when I come back to make all things new. The Passover people remembered and longed, and Jesus re-envisions the Passover for us so that we might be a people who now in the Lord's Supper remember God's intervening act and lo- acts and long for his coming renewal and redemption. But we are not only to look back and celebrate and receive God's mercy at this table. We are to cultivate longing and anticipation at this table because Jesus has promised to come again. But this leads to one final question. I know that's a lot of history, by the way. One of the things I wrestled with in this sermon is, is like, man, I want you guys to walk out of here like you feel like a Messianic Jew in some way. <laughs> and uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to wrestle with. But the more that we can digest the history of God's people, the more we will see the richness of what Jesus is doing in bringing us to the Lord's table. But it leads us to this last final question, per- perhaps the most essential question for us this morning, and it's this. Who is the table for? Who is this invitation to the table of the Lord, to communion with God himself, to be a part of the family of God, to sit and dine with him, to receive the forgiveness of sins and to be marked by his mercy? Who is it for? The passage that follows the Passover meal that we read this morning and the inauguration of communion is is such a gift to us. 
because it tells us that after this meal, after Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he has just told his disciples what the meaning of his coming is. And then he says to his disciples, all of you will fall away from me. As Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, prophesied, when the shepherd has been struck, the sheep will be scattered. And when Jesus tells the disciples that they will fall away from him, they are offended. Especially Peter, which is such classic Peter. Peter says this. I love, I love reading Peter in the Gospels. He says, he just totally throws all of his brothers under the bus. He says, even if they, the other disciples, fall away, I will not. And he says, sure, maybe they're going to fall away, but yours truly never will. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to be the worst of them. Because tonight, before the sun has even risen tomorrow morning, before it has fully come up in the morning, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter says, Jesus, I am so committed to you that even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it says that all of the disciples said the same. And what happened? They all fell away. Only a few hours later. And Peter would deny Jesus so vehemently that Mark says in chapter 14, verse 71, that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man who you speak of. And beloved, here's the remarkable news of the gospel. Here's the remarkable graciousness of the host of the Lord's table. Jesus knew that his disciples would deny him. He knew they would fall away. He knew Peter would curse and swear, declaring with utmost fervency that he did not even know Jesus. And knowing that the disciples would deny him, Jesus laid down his life for their sakes. His body broken so, they might, so that they might have his life. His blood spilled on the cross so that they might be passed over by God's wrath and know his mercy and forgiveness instead. Beloved, the good news of the gospel and the table that Jesus invites us to, it's not for the put together. It's not for the good people or the righteous people, and it is not even, this is something that we need to hear in our moment, it's not even for the sufficiently self-aware people. You may be surprised by your sin, by your flakiness to Jesus, by the ways that you will compromise yourself, and you might swear up and down that you will never fall into XYZ sin again, or you'll be a more faithful follower of Jesus from here on out. And Jesus says, I know you better than you know yourself. And guess what? I know what I signed up for. I will willingly have my body broken and my blood shed for you. The wrath of the Father will be poured out on me so that you will know his mercy. 
Who is the Lord's Supper for? It is not for the put together. It is not even for the self-aware. But it is for anyone who will receive it by faith, feeble as that faith may be. Our hope in coming to the Lord's table is neither the strength of our faith or the fervency of our commitment to Jesus. We live in a moment where so often we put our hope and our stock in our fervency of commitment to Jesus. And let me tell you, the disciples did too. It turns out that wasn't the place to put their hope. But our hope is in the faithfulness and sacrifice of Jesus alone. As I was reading and preparing uh, for this sermon, I read an article by a Messianic Jew, which one of my good buddies refers to Messianic Jews, uh, which Messianic Jews are are uh, Jewish people who practice the practices of Judaism, but who believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah of God. One of my good buddies refers to, G- to Messianic Jews as Jedi Christians, um, which is, I think, a really helpful description because what it tells us is they understand Christianity a lot better than we do because they understand the whole of scriptures and the depth and breadth of what God's people were longing and waiting for. There is so much richness in understanding Jesus. But as I was preparing for this sermon, I I ran across this article by a a Messianic Jew who had the opportunity to travel to Samaria. And Samaria is one of the few places in the world where when they do the Passover meal year in and year out, they still actually practice sacrificing a lamb for the Passover meal each year. And the writer said that as they went to Samaria and witnessed the, the slaughtering of the lambs in preparation for the Passover meal He said that he was struck by the horror of innocent lambs dying for no fault of their own. The reality of all of that death for the benefit of others. And then he said that that his guide, that the, the guide of the group that he was with, said something incredibly profound. A question that he left us with for the Passover and that this guy will always think of in the future. He said this, the guide said, when you bring a sacrificial lamb to the temple for the priest to check for flaws because it had to be a spotless lamb. Does the priest examine you or does the priest examine the lamb? Beloved, though we are deeply and woefully flawed, if you have put your feeble faith in Jesus, when God checks for our flaws, does he examine you? Or does he examine the slain lamb, the son of God, Jesus? The gospel tells us that by God's mercy, Jesus is examined on our behalf and is found to be without fault or blemish so that we could be the family of God. Flawed and broken, maybe crushed by the weight of guilt or maybe naive about what we are capable of. And yet a people who gather at this table as those who belong by grace and by grace alone. May God give us the faith and the humility to receive by grace the gift he has given us. Let me pray for us and then I'll take a couple questions if we have any. Father, we come this morning humbled by this passage and I know uh, I myself have 
so many times in my life put so much hope in the thought that I will finally get on this sort of new plane of spirituality where I'll stop letting you down and I can start hoping in my strength. Jesus, thank you that that is not your vision for the Christian life. Thank you, Jesus, that you do not examine us for flaws and and point all of them out, though we have them in abundance more than we even know. But you know what you've signed up for, and by your mercy, you examine Jesus and find us faultless. Lord, give us anew today the wonder of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. So I think we just have one question this morning, and it's this. What do you think Jesus meant by saying it would be better that he was never born? It's so harsh. This led to Judah uh, to Judas taking his own life in a horrific way. Man, that's a great question, and um, yeah, a heavy one, obviously. Um, I mean, I in some ways I think that it's. I, I think this is probably the simplest way to come at it is. What Judas has done um, tears most essentially at the very core of what we are intended for as human beings. Because all of us, when we commit sin, uh, ourselves or towards one another, we do something to denigrate the image of God because we're all made in the image of God. But Jesus is not only the reflection of God, he is the son of God himself. And so what Judas is doing here in this passage is actually, in his betrayal of Jesus, is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate tearing away at the fabric of humanity. Because the one who is actually the perfect picture of God, who is himself the image of God, Judas is betraying. And in doing so is denigrating ultimately the image of God in himself. I, that's sort of a meandering thought that maybe is adjacent to this question. <laughs> um, but I also, uh, I, you know, something that I, I know that Christians oftentimes wrestle with is this idea of like, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Because there's one place in the Bible that talks about an unforgivable sin. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> There's probably some nuance to that, but, I, but almost universally when I've had that conversation with someone, the, the, the main thing that I would say to them is, no, <laughs> you have not committed the unforgivable sin. <laughs> um, and uh, it, 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 I, I think that ultimately what it's, yeah, I'm struggling to answer this question, partly because it's just, it's such a sorrowful reality um, that Judas who actually had the opportunity to walk with Jesus and to hear Jesus' teachings more clearly and more fully, although I suppose we have the whole picture. But, but Jesus actually, Judas walked with Jesus. He knew him. They lived as brothers in many ways. And Judas betrayed him. So um, there is, I think there are a couple of other places, places in the Old Testament that use the sort of like Old Testament sounding curse. It would be, it would be better for him not to be born. Um, and it's a way of saying that um, this is a life that, um, that has been used 
in the most counter way possible to what God has made humanity for. It, it counters the purposes of what humanity is made for. Um, but here's the strange paradox of Christianity, and it is, of course, not that Judas' actions are they're clearly not justified in this passage. Um, but the strange paradox, as the New Testament says, and actually as Genesis says as well, that even what man intends for evil... It's not that God's like, cool, you did evil, and that's fine with me because I'm going to repurpose it for good. No, it says that God is so good that he even can use what man intends for evil to bring about his redemptive purposes. And that is a really hopeful thing for people like us who oftentimes do things that we shouldn't do. And it actually frees us from living in the sort of like weight of shame and guilt of that, of like, yep, I did that, and that was not okay. And God is big enough that he can redeem those things. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, so as we move to, to the Lord's Tupper, Supper, I'll just give one final reminder that our, that our hope um, our hope is, is not in looking in ourselves. Uh, a, a friend of mine, this is an old saying, has often said that um, for every one look that we take at our sins, we should take 10 looks at the cross. And that's so counter to how we function in our world and our culture because everything in us says the way you figure out the solutions to your problems is by looking inward. And the gospel invites us outward. And it says there's a slain lamb that has done something for you that you could never have done for yourself. And that is your hope. Look to him in faith. We pray for us as we move to the Lord's table as Brad leads us there. Um, uh, Lord, you know that we are a, a people who... Um, tend to obsess over our uh, shortcomings, our competencies or incompetencies, uh, our, our deeply woeful sins and flaws. And we thank you that you call us out of ourselves, not to look at ourselves in introspection or navel-gazing, but even when you call us to reflect and to see our sin, it is not to keep looking at our sin, but it is to look to you and to see that you've done something about it. We ask that you'd help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.